Hello and welcome to Primary Sources, a spin-off podcast from the Doctor Who show where we take what people were saying about Doctor Who in the 80s and 90s and we riff on it. The conversation might stick closely to that primary source or it might go off on its own tangent. Who knows? For this second episode, I'm joined again by my Doctor Who show co-host, Dave. Hello. Hello, Rob. And once again, I have literally no idea where we're going. I I don't know what month you've picked. Um, we're, We're very fresh and I'm keen to get back into it. Great. Well, I can tell you, I'm taking letters from Doctor Who magazine of May 1989. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, okay. and there's some really interesting stuff in here, so let's not waste another moment. Let's rip straight in. Yes. This first letter is called Setting the Record Straight. What do you think it might be about? <laughs> that's a very cruel question. It could be anything. <laughs> I'm going to guess J&T, but that's just a guess. <laughs> You'll be very surprised. The article, Special Effects, by Saul Nasser in the Doctor Who magazine anniversary special was very interesting and gave a good introduction to the various areas of skills of video effects, video graphics, visual effects, model shots and design effects that were often used in combination to give what is generally known as special effects. The section first steps in the article did unfortunately contain a few myths that unless corrected could be accepted as fact. I know the author would agree with me that the record should be put right. The many fans and enthusiasts of Doctor Who, from my experience in meeting them, and there might be a clue, are keen on background information and would expect it to be factual and not inaccurate or total untruth. The valuable input that Barry Newbury and I contributed to Doctor Who consisted of designing all the sets, the visual effects, model shots, special props and design effects, I worked on the series from the inception in 1963 and continued until 1965, designing 10 stories from Story B, the Daleks, to Story V, the Dalek Master Plan. Are you getting any warmer as to who this might be? Uh, It's got to be Ray Cusack, surely. We'll see. Jack Kine and Bernard Wilkie, both of whom I knew very well, did not have any involvement in these stories in conceptual design or manufacture of any visual effect or any other effect. Their contribution was purely administrative, inasmuch as arranging a contract with Shawcraft models for them to construct from designs by Barry Newbury or myself. The BBC Visual Effects Department was not involved in any way with the series until 1967. All this background is explained in the definitive book, Doctor Who, The Early Years. Another myth is that I based my design of the Dalek on a pepper pot. Page 121 of the above book does give a slightly misleading idea. I used the pot, it might have been a salt pot, at the lunch table just to demonstrate how it should move. The design was already in my mind. In fact, I made a rough sketch. Again, the caption is misleading. My fault as I cooperated in the book and I should have spotted it at the proof stage. If only design was as easy as being inspired by a pepper pot. The design was based on a mixture of logic, ergonomics, menace, effect and cost and a little burning of the midnight oil. The result, a Dalek. And yes, Dave, that letter was from Ray Kuzak. That's kind of amazing to imagine Ray Kuzak, the legend that he now is thought of being as well reading and 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 writing into to doctor <laughs> who magazine to correct the record. that's that's very very cool what what's what's just so telling though is just how little of doctor who's history at this stage was actually properly researched and and recorded and how much in this era we were still literally going on that sort of fan legend word of mouth 
mm. um, hastily written magazine articles that were then sort of cribbed as fanzine articles a few years later. It, we hadn't had any of the House Stammers Walker books. Um, uh, we, we had some of those, the Peter Haining reference books, which were very, very, very high level and very, very basic. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, I mean, now this is the sort of stuff where you get a book with, with copies re- re- recreated of Cusack's notes and sketches and interviews and multiple source comments. And, yeah. And so this, this is just such a different time and it's a reminder of just how many truths, in inverted commas, we knew about in, in fandom in 1989. And by this stage, I was definitely in fandom. How many of those have since been debunked? Yeah. Well, I mean, I always took the Pepper Pot story to be true you know, when I was young and and maybe even until recently when I read this again. Yeah. uh, It was like, oh yeah, there was was a pepper pot generally involved in the design. And here he says very clearly, he already knew what it was looking like. He was just pushing a, possibly even a salt pot around the table just to show how it glided instead. Yeah. And and I can totally imagine him having dinner with, you know, the, the, the other designers or the director or whatever, and, and sort of being trying to explain, oh, this is how, this is how what I'm designing is going to work. Oh, hang on, let me show you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That makes, that makes perfect sense. And in a funny Um, sort of way, you know, he probably looked at the pepper pot and thought that looks like my my design. So I'll I'll use that rather than actually looking at that and saying, I'll take that to be my design. If you see what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, as we discussed in our Terry Nation episode of the the Doctor Who show, Nation script does sort of, mention this movement being like these big Cossack women dancers with the big hooped skirts that sort of glide along the floor. So, you know, there there was an inception there before the whole Pepperbot thing Mm. came along. The other thing is just thinking about, you know, all all that stuff is at the start of the letter about what goes into Doctor Who special effects, and it's still almost all practical stuff. Yeah. And even even what we would consider to be... um, a non-practical effect like a laser beam isn't that much more sophisticated than somebody getting out a texture and you know drawing on the cell. <laughs> it's a little bit more than that, but not much. That's right. You know th- these things; these things were drawn on, or, or, or you know done in done in that sort of a you know hand handcrafted way. Yeah, yeah, just a whole different age. Shall we move on to the next letter? Yeah, please. Okay, this one has the heading "Short Seasons." There can't be many fans happy with the ridiculously short Doctor Who seasons, again skipped over by the magazine. If only a few programs on the BBC have long seasons, why can't Doctor Who be one of them? Aloha Low is currently enjoying a 26-week run, more than twice its normal length. As for limited budgets, what about all the merchandise sold? Surely this could pay. An increase in episodes would mean an increase in fees from overseas, an increase in target publications, etc. I'm realistic to know if the BBC is spending $1.6 million on season 26 for 14 episodes, it is not going to spend $3.2 million on 28 episodes. However, a compromise could and should be reached, such as 20 episodes, 5 stories, for example. I'm sure Doctor Who fans have been encouraged by season 25, I agree with most of what David Howe had to say in his review of Silver Nemesis. It was not as good as Remembrance of the Daleks, or Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Nevertheless, it was a vast improvement on what we've seen in recent years, and emphasises the quality of Season 25. 
the news that the BBC was considering a nighttime subscription service had me thinking. Repeats of all those old episodes of Doctor Who. Imagine it. We British would no longer be the poor relations as regards repeat showings. There could even be a discussion program beforehand or afterwards produced by the fans with guest artists, directors, producers, writers, etc. Ah, well, it was just a thought. And that's from David Halgate from Knaresborough, North Yorkshire. Dave, I'm going to jump in first and say I think he's ahead of his time there. He's basically invented Whovians. He's invented, well, what's this nighttime subscription thing? This is like BBC Netflix. What on earth is this letter about? It's, it's over 30 years old, Dave. It's at the same time visionary and completely naive. <laughs> um, you know, in, in that you're right. He, he has correctly, he has correctly um, anticipated developments in television decades later. Uh, not least the fact that a show's own merchandising and sales would actually be reinvested into the program, not just going back to consolidated revenue, as was the case in the eighties. Mm-hmm. The idea that that was going to happen in 1989 is, is just farcical. And um, it's kind of wonderful to hear it. Um, one stat there I want to pull out that, that's really just amazing. It's, it's a reminder that the, the £1.6 million mm. budget for a whole season of Doctor Who yeah. in the same year that Star Trek The Next Generation was budgeted for a million dollars an episode. Yes. You know, it just shows you what a what a different plane these shows were, were, were being fought out on. It's just incredible. Look, as to the main thrust of the thing, uh, absolutely. Uh, it's fascinating to look at Doctor Who and watch that decline from sort of 50 episodes a year down to 14. Uh, just just happening one after the other and, and really being that, that switch from this is perennial programming that's always around the corner and then it gets down to, well, in, in, in the Pertwee years, it's six months of the year. Then mm. with, with Davo, they go to two nights a week, so it's now three months of the year. And, and suddenly with McCoy, you know, it's, it's the same thing. It's only one episode a week. It certainly puts me in mind of that, that famous anecdote where J&T, at the end of the hiatus, stood up in front of a bunch of Doctor Who fans. I think it was like Panopticon or Monopticon or one of the big cons, I think. Mm. And he said, you know, good, good news. The show is not only coming back, but we're going from 13 episodes to 14 episodes. And Ian Levine standing up and saying, John, will you admit to them that it's going from 13 45-minute episodes to 14 25-minute episodes? And that's sort of being a big scandal. And and the consequence of that, I think, is actually very relevant to conversations we've had in the last few years, where we've talked about the time needed for someone like Jodie Whittaker to really establish herself as the Doctor. Mm -hmm. Because I can remember the, the, the absolute pasting that McCoy got at the end of season 24, certainly out here, and I, I think to a reasonable extent in the UK as well. And, and some of his defenders just making the point that this guy had had 14 episodes to try and make a mark, and, and that's just nothing compared to what any other previous Doctor got away with. You know, other Doctors got full 26, 27 episode seasons yeah. um, to, to, to really establish themselves. McCoy, you know, 14 episodes done and, and no time to settle into the role. And and a script editor who was very green, both yeah. in terms of getting the content together and just doing the job. And when they come back, I think you're about to say, when they come back the following year, McCoy is much better. Cartmel's on, on his game, you know, it's so much better. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there wasn't much that Cartmore could do to Tom and the Rani. I mean, he no. he got he got Pip and Jane to drop a couple of their crazier ideas and gave it a bit of a rewrite. But basically, a script was done when he got there, and 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 then it was just like you know getting getting his mates. Hey, could could you do me a script in you know a day? <laughs> and and you got to say Paradise Towers, Delta, and Dragonfire are all great ideas. Yes, you know, if nothing else. Yeah, they're fantastic ideas, but they clearly have not had either the time to polish the script or to make the production work. No. What is kind of amazing, though, that comes out of this, and it is that whole thing about necessity and the mother of invention, is the three-parter, which purely came about because JNT's looking at these 14-episode stories and going, well, I can do, you know, four, four, and six, mm-hmm. or four, 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 two. I don't like six-parters. Two-parters are a bit small. And suddenly he's gone, hang on, I can do four, four, three, three. Yeah. And we suddenly discover in these last three years of the show that three-parters are kind of the perfect size for a Doctor Who story. Exactly and it's, right. It's it's just come out of nowhere. It's, it's really, really cool. But I think that a lot of us, particularly those who are long-term fans at the time, must have been looking at this and knowing that we were kind of in the end of Doctor Who. Mm. And that when the, the BBC is literally just putting £1.6 million pounds down to make a series, it's only 14 episodes. It really is just we're doing this because if we cancel it, you'll be upset. So this is the absolute minimum that we think we can get away with in terms of time and money. And I think a lot of fans must have been aware that this was just, the show was on borrowed time now. Yeah. And talking merch, etc. just to finish here, how much in merch, in video sales, in DVD sales, has that season brought back? I, I, I wager it's more than 1.6 million somehow. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, I mean, home video was really taking off at this time. Um, you know, they were licensing stuff out to Daypole. Yeah. Um, the, the overseas sales would have been reasonable. I mean, we certainly got it here. It, yeah, absolutely. The, the fact that whose sales went back to consolidated revenue, not to the show, absolutely scandalous and just would not happen today. Yeah. Next letter. Final letter, yes, Dave. Yes, yes. This one's called The Next Avatar. How goes DWM? People are beginning to tell me it's worth getting again. So your reputation's going up. I trust your sales are too. Thinking further on what makes a series work or whose absence makes it fail, recent seasons have demonstrated that 1. The Doctor can't be a wimp, or else he'd return to Gallifrey and accept the High Council strictures. 2. The Doctor can't be a buffoon, else none of the people he offers to help can take him seriously. 3. The actor playing the Doctor must be strong-willed and opinionated because otherwise his wisdom varies from scriptwriter to scriptwriter. Sylvester McCoy's asides are individually good, but don't add up to a consistent who point. With the above in mind, there's only one actor I've seen recently I'd unhesitatingly nominate for the next avatar of Doctor Who. Kate O'Mara. Wow. Any reaction? Alternatives? I'd love to see the different problems earlier Doctors have in coping with a female self, but it would also open up possibilities for the companions and the Doctor's basic thought processes. No? And that's from Peter Pinto from the Paper Book Back Shop. And yes, I do have that name right. Paper Book Back Shop, 33 North Road, Lancaster. And Dave, again, that's predicting the future from May 1989. I'm not making that up. That's here in Dwim. That's another prophetic but disastrous idea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, The thing that really comes out of me at that 
is this consistent thread through the show's history of fans thinking they know better than the production team mm-hmm. and and generally not in politics we would use the term playing to the base yeah and, and i think that there was already too much in the show at this stage of, of playing to the base you know what's going to get the people who turn up to doctor who conventions and are going to you know pigeonhole jnt in a corridor and or you know catch him at a pub event and, and and you know wag a finger and say this is what we think and this is what we love rather than the person who's just sort of saying well you know what am i going to do tonight do i watch doctor who or something else or do something else and i think that a lot of the suggestions in there really do feel like a fan lecturing the show about what to do mm-hmm. with actual no appeal to the to the mass audience and i think that katamara is also just such a fan pick just such a fan pick <laughs> that i think would have been an absolute disaster yeah they're, they're they're my first couple of thoughts but rob what about you look i i take on board what you're saying but i think you're, you're just dancing around a bit dave the main topic there of the doctor becoming female which seemed to be an anathema back in the late 80s with most fans particularly blokes this is a bloke riding yet this guy is well on board for the Doctor to be a woman. I can't think of many people who thought the Doctor should be a woman here 30 years ago. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting that it's said so overtly. I, I agree that that is actually quite an outstanding thing. And it's also particularly interesting that he's saying the Doctor needs to be a very strong character and his go-to then is a woman. I think that that's really, really awesome. Mm. Although I do think that it undersells the history that the show has with that. Uh, you go all the way back to, to Barbara and you have extremely strong female character there. Romana was basically a female version of the Doctor, both, both Romana 1 and Romana 2 in very different ways. Mm-hmm. And, and indeed, there are some very good female villains, strong female villains that, that come through. You know, Hilda Winters, Cecilia of Diplos uh, were a couple that just come to mind. So I think Doctor Who has got a very good reputation there, but you're right, that is an unusual thing to hear in a letter and I think it does in some ways go back to my comment on the previous letter about fans getting this kind of sense of impending doom Mm -hmm. and 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 perhaps being willing to roll the dice on stuff that they wouldn't if the show was going strong and if this was a high rating show that was doing 26 episodes a year um would they sort of feel the need to shake it up or would it be steady as she goes uh not that that's a bad thing at all I'm, I'm I'm not saying it's a bad thing but I I think that the sense that this show is struggling now and is on its last legs does lead you to, to, to you know throw dice on more risky stuff and, and, and of course DWM would, you know, would love to publish that sort of stuff because that's the stuff that gets people reading and, and, and writing in and, and I, I suspect there would have been a lot of people that would have written in in outrage at that letter yeah well indeed it'll be interesting to see if we pick up a, a later issue uh, later in this series and someone else might get a letter about that yeah no I, th- I think that they certainly would have received them, and whether they published them or not, I, I don't know. Well, they seem that this is the era. I had to remind myself this is the era where Doctor Who magazine wasn't just the uh, the card of Pravda, as our friends at Forty Two to Doomsday would call it, but did actually print things like like this fella's letter. I'm just going to turn back to it. I've, I've shut the magazine. I'm turning back to it where he says, uh, you know, how goes Dwim? People are telling me it's getting better, so your reputation's going up, trust your sales are too. You know, I don't think modern Doctor Who Monthly would uh, publish that at all. 
It's also the era of Doctor Who magazine where it has a very, very genuine competitor, uh, not just in fandom, but in the professional world, that being DWB. Yes. And we were at this point at the stage where DWB had gone from being a photocopied newsletter to, to was actually becoming a proper credible professionally produced production so if you weren't happy with dwm and particularly if you weren't happy with it taking a very safe very pro bbc line and they were because jnt you know would, would not give them production favors and, and access if they didn't yeah. if you weren't happy with that you could go and buy dwb and they would have all the alternative opinions you could ever want mm-hmm. so so there was a genuine bit of um competition there that that frankly doesn't exist now Although there are many different ways in which you can engage in fandom now, you know, particularly via the internet, if you don't like DWM, I don't think there's an alternative production that's going to give you the non-card of sanctioned news and opinions where you know you can actually give a review of a show too rather than this was a slightly weak show that maybe wasn't as good as their normally awesome standard 8 out of 10. You know? <laughs> so yeah, it is an interesting time for the magazine at this stage where you've got Strong competition, a show that is struggling. And, and also from a magazine's point of view, like, you know, Doctor Who magazine has generally been at its strongest when the show is on air a lot. Mm. So, you know, right now, or, or, or I guess particularly the RTD era, when the show was on for three months of the year and there were other shows on, you know, there was Torchwood, there was Sarah Jane Adventures, there was always a show on or in production. Yeah, And DWM could really hang itself off that. Going back to the Davison era, even most of the Colin era, again, there was a show on a lot in production. There were multiple stories a season. So, you know, by the time you've previewed every story, reviewed every story, done an interview with everybody in each story, you've filled out a year. Yeah. Um, by this stage, when you're getting down to four stories a year, they haven't got as much material hanging off. And I think the magazine took a long time to really adjust the show being off air mm-hmm. and switch to being a very, very nostalgic focused one where it looked back at production in a lot of detail and it talked about merchandise in a lot of detail and you'd start to get those interviews with those very obscure people mm-hmm. that was a very different audience to what, what literally was here's the news about the show here's what's coming here's what we thought of it it's a different vibe and I think the magazine's struggling with that as well yeah I do agree but Dave we like to keep these short so we'll knock that uh, episode on the head there I think did you enjoy that? I, I did. That was um, that was a different vibe to the first one of these we did, which is good because I think it's good to have um, the same format but different vibe. Yeah. So we've we've done an eighty five and an eighty nine. Who knows where we'll go in our third episode? Who knows who I'll be talking to in our third episode? No, that's right. I'm going to sit the next one out, and I'll be back hopefully with episode four. Yes. But until then, uh, I guess we can say it this way. I've been Rob, and I've been Dave, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.